According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Our study in the book of Jeremiah brings us to chapter 34 this morning. Jeremiah chapter 34. So 35, 36, 37. We have chapter 37 for a Christmas message coming up. And that'll be kind of fun. We don't... um, We don't teach liturgically, and we don't often change our messages for holidays or observances and things of that nature, um, which sometimes leads for some very interesting combinations. Isaiah 37 on Christmas morning may be uh, up there. Um, There are others that are even worse, though, so we're we're fine. Uh, God's in charge of all of this, and uh, we can appreciate that. Um, But continuing on where we left off, we wrapped up chapter 33 last week, and we're ready now for chapter 34. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God the Father to set aside our distractions and to bless our time of study this morning. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the gift of your Son. Father, for the blessing that we have to be in him and to study, to show ourselves approved. Father, I thank you for the wealth of teaching you're providing in our Galatians series and our Proverbs series, and especially here, Father, in Isaiah and Jeremiah. Uh, Father, the, the, the testimony of these faithful prophets, rejected by their people, rejected by their king, and yet staying faithful to communicate the message you've given to each one. Father, I pray that we might be mindful of these, uh, these men of whom the world is not worthy that we would appreciate the message, the faithful message they delivered, and that we would uh, claim each promise for ourselves, Father, in our own application, that which is designed uh, that we adapt for Israel's application, we adapt for our own, and we need discernment and wisdom in how to do that here this morning. So we thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. Jeremiah 34. I tell you... um, through all these chapters so far, it's been doom and gloom, right? Uh, the armies are coming, the armies are coming, and in some cases, the armies are here. And depending on what chapter you're reading, uh, the city is already under siege and uh, has been for some time. In this chapter, the city is under siege and is within a very short time of being thrown down. It's within one year of the, of the destruction. And so uh, these contexts become important for us. I think uh, also we kind of get a little fatigued when, okay, it's coming, it's coming, when's it going to get here, right? Um, But that kind of fatigue is good because um, we ourselves should be operating under a system of of, uh, imminency uh, with the rapture of the church that could happen at any moment, and we don't want to have rapture fatigue and say, well, it's been 2,000 years now, when's it going to happen, or it's not going to happen, or we can join with the mockers in their mockings and say it's not going to happen, or God's too slow in... uh, in what he's doing. No, it will come on the precisely correct day that is designed to come. And in the meantime, as we watch all these things falling apart all around us, we stay faithful and we stay trusting the Lord in uh, everything that his word has to say. And so we see it here uh, in 34.1, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army with all the kingdoms of the earth that were under his dominion, And all the peoples were fighting against Jerusalem and against all its cities, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Go and speak to Zedekiah king of Judah, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will burn it with fire. 
You will not escape from his hand, for you will surely be captured and delivered into his hand, and you will see the king of Babylon eye to eye, and he will speak with you face to face, and you will go to Babylon. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord concerning you, you will not die by the sword. You will die in peace, and as spices are burned for your fathers, the former kings who were before you, so they will burn spices for you, and they will lament for you. Alas, Lord, for I have spoken the word, declares the Lord. And so that takes us down through verse 5. Let me get two more verses in here. Then Jeremiah the prophet spoke all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah, in Jerusalem, when the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and against all the remaining cities of Judah, that is, Lachish and Azekah. For they alone remained as fortified cities among the cities of Judah. All right, so we're down to this, where there's three cities holding out. You know, what's, what's left of your nation when all you got left is the capital and two other rather minor, smaller cities, all right? And they're starting to fall as well. And uh, this is all that's left, and it shows you how close we are now to this uh, destruction. Jerusalem, Lachish, and Azekah were the final cities of Judah to hold out against Nebuchadnezzar's invasion. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the servant of God. Nebuchadnezzar was a tool in his hand. He had victory everywhere he went. Uh, not because he was so smart and special and powerful, but because God had a purpose for Nebuchadnezzar, was using the Babylonians for his good purposes. I don't believe he's not saved yet. He doesn't get saved until uh, he throws Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace, but he will get saved at a point of time, and, uh, and he's still this instrument here in, in, uh, in God's hands in the meantime. And so we have these cities are the last ones that are left. I've Got some pictures together for you, and we'll look at some maps. Uh, This prophecy is redundant. It restates previously given judgments, right? You're probably sitting here thinking, well, I've heard this before, I've heard this before. I'm sure Zedekiah was sitting there thinking, I've heard this before, I've heard this before. Well, in chapter 21 and in chapter 32, uh, we have these previously given judgments. Jerusalem is going to fall. Uh, He is going to burn the city. It is all coming down. And yet... In this final restatement that we see here, there is a personal note that's attached. Oh, by the way, um, a personal promise that's attached to King Zedekiah. Unlike Jehoiakim, you might remember, Zedekiah will be mourned upon his death. That they're going to have a, a time of grieving. They're going to burn the bonfire, we say. And whether the spices belong there or not, I don't think spices are in the Hebrew. But they're burning a fire, and it's a celebration fire in memory of the one that they're honoring. And that was common. Um, unlike Ze- uh, uh, Jehoiakim, you might recall back in chapter 22, he was dragged out of the city and thrown over the wall and, and given a donkey's burial, that is to say not buried, <laughs> okay? and he was thrown out by the side of the road, and uh, no one lamented him, if, uh, if you recall. Jeremiah 22, verses 18 and 19. Uh, Thus says the Lord in regard to Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, they will not lament for him, alas, my brother or alas, sister, they will not lament for him, alas, for the master or alas, for his splendor. He will be buried with a donkey's burial, dragged off and thrown out beside the gates of Jerusalem. And so that's the the sad note there to Jehoiakim. Zedekiah gets a consolation prize, all right? Um, Yes, he's going to have his eyes gouged out. Yes, he's going to be blinded. Uh, The last thing he sees is the execution of his sons. Uh, He he will have no surviving heirs, no no surviving sons. Then his eyes are gouged out, and then he's taken off to Babylon, where 
he will be allowed to live out his days and will die of presumably natural causes at some point, at which point uh, there will be a bonfire lit. There will be a grieving uh, celebration of life in, in memory of Zedekiah. So we have a personal note there. Mourned upon his death with a bonfire lamentation. If you want a couple other passages that relate to this, you'll find them in Second Chronicles. And um, they're not so well known. I mean, who reads Chronicles anyway? Um, but they're not so well known. And, um, but they're useful. Second Kings 16, uh, Second Chronicles 16 and verse 14. This is when Asa dies. Uh, they buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut out for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices of various kinds, blended by the perfumer's arts. And uh, they made a very great fire for him. All right. And so spices seems to be related to the treatment of the body and its wrappings and it's, it's being laid where it's laid. Uh, the fire appears to be something else, appears to be outside of the tomb and appears to be like an Aggie bonfire kind of thing, right? Just appears to be, uh, I mean, who doesn't like to build a big fire? So uh, build a big fire and celebrate with respect to that. So Asa, Asa gets a big bonfire. In chapter 21, though, <laughs> and a passage makes me laugh every time I read it, um, we read in, in this, and it's kind of gross, um, uh, against Jehoram, the spirit of the Philistines. and Anyway, it's a bad end to his reign. And um, so after all this, the Lord smote him in his bowels with an incurable sickness. And it came about in the course of time, at the end of two years, that his bowels came out because of his sickness, and he died in great pain. And his people made no fire for him like the fire for his father's. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years, and he departed with no one's regret. <laughs> and, and they buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. All right, so a couple of passages there that relate to burial practices and, and uh, so forth. So it's a consolation in a way for Zedekiah here and what he can anticipate. Uh, if you use the Logos Bible software, I would encourage you, the, the Bible Places has a good map here that, uh, that you can look at that's useful and that's too small. Um, it can be zoomed. Let's see. Nope. Zoom. Anyway, this is a map of Israel and it's useful by the way, if you want to track in uh, the three different waves that Nebuchadnezzar arrives, and it matches up very well with uh, our studies previously to this, how uh, in the first attack came in 604 BC, so you can follow the blue line for that. And uh, 604, this was when Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were carried away. And then the second time in 599 to 598, this is when Ezekiel was carried away, and 10,000 of the craftsmen and the priests and the leading citizens. Uh, that's the orange line. And, uh, and then uh, the green line is, is presently uh, where we are with the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, this was the third and final time that Nebuchadnezzar comes to, to put down these troublemakers here. And, uh, and you can see it's kind of the same route every time through Lebanon down south from Dan. Remember the description geographically. If you want to talk about Israel, it's from Dan to Beersheba, right? Dan is the far northern boundary. Beersheba is the far southern boundary. Well, coming right down through Dan past the Sea of Galilee... Um, turning up to Megiddo. So how many battles happen at Megiddo, right? There's the great staging area for the rest of the territory. 
branching off to Tyre, branching down here, headed towards Egypt. But at this point, we reach Jerusalem, Azekah, and Lachish. And uh, Jerusalem, Azekah, and Lachish, right there. And that's all that's left. Not much of a nation, right? And they were already small anyway. They were already just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And uh, now it's down to just this. All right. Let's escape. These are fun too, by the way. If you're a visual learner like I am, if you, uh, if you like to look at maps and just stare at things, uh, it's useful. Also, I think it's useful when you can zoom out and remind yourself, oh, look at that. That's planet Earth. That's, uh, that's where I live, okay? Uh, the Bible is real, and the stories are real, and they really happen to real people in real places. And the people aren't here anymore, but the places are. And, and we can kind of relate to, to this. And we can say, well, I've been there before, and I've been to Europe, and I've been to Asia, and I've been to... And you can go there to this day. Anyway, so it's useful for zooming in and zooming out and seeing the same map I was just showing you earlier on PowerPoint with the different cities and the different line of attacks. The Edomites joined in. They figured, hey, as long as uh, the, the Jews are able to get beat up, let's beat up on some Jews. And they uh, went in and attacked. And that's the book of Obadiah kind of deals with that. And um, Masada and Gedi, some of these other regions there. Anyway, we can spend hours, but we don't have time. Useful to see. So they're down to those three cities, Jerusalem, Azekah, and Lachish, all right? And uh, very quickly, in fact, archaeology tells us uh, the order that they fall in, uh, because Achish is the first one for the fire to go out. And uh, interestingly enough, archaeologists have uncovered ostraca. Ostraca is a pottery, right? Shards that were used uh, with writing on them for records and letter writing. And um, these were discovered in the ruins of Lachish, that indicated the fall of Azekah. And so, again, our faith isn't in the archaeology, but it's fun when archaeology comes and produces evidence and testimony that lines up precisely with what the Bible's talking about. And uh, so here we're in the Bible, we're reading Jeremiah, we're reading Second Kings, we're studying the Babylonian attack in uh, Jerusalem, and we see that they're down to Jerusalem, Azekah, and Lachish. And lo and behold, what do we find? In the ruins of Lachish, we find um, a letter that had been written uh, there was evidently there were spies. There were there was an outpost somewhere on a high hill that could see the the lit bonfires in Ezekiah and in Lachish signal towers, if you will. And uh, as a part of this letter, uh, it's translated. Let him also know that we are watching for the beacons of Lachish in accordance with all the fire signals that my Lord has given. But we do not see Ezekiah. We do not see Ezekiel. So whoever this scout was, this spy or this reporter, whoever was, was uh, watching for these signal towers is testifying at this point now that Ezekiel's gone. The, the, the tower is no longer lit. And, uh, and this was carried to Lachish because that's where it was found. <laughs> it was found in the rubble. All right. And you can Google it if you want. There's some good websites that uh, describe the, uh, they're called the Lachish Letters, uh, even though they're all in Ostraca. But they're called the Lachish Letters. There's like 18 of them, I think, all together. And uh, this one happens to be numbered uh, number four in uh, that archaeology collection. And websites are free and easy. You can browse there, and it's cheaper than flying to the British Museum and uh, seeing the 
If they even let you look at these things, probably not. All right. So here's what we're dealing with. Now, you think, well, what else better is there to do since we're all about to die anyway? Let's, uh, let's free our slaves. So as we move to verses 8 through 11, you know, people get some funny ideas and uh, they get some crazy ideas sometimes. Uh, they start to think, well, what can we do to change things? What can we do to make God happy? What can we do to be more religious? What can we do to maybe save our, our necks and not get conquered? Hey, let's try releasing all our slaves. That might work. All right. And until then they decide, oh, bad idea. Let's take them back. And so they, they, produce, they, they pronounce a freedom and then they re-enslave them. It's a horrible thing to be doing. It's like, don't you have better things to do than rearrange chairs on the t- Titanic or uh, all these other things? Let's look at verses 8 through 11 here. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after King uh, Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people who were in Jerusalem to proclaim release to them. He's making a covenant here. What, give him that idea. Where's this coming from? That each man should set free his male servant and his uh, each man his female servant, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, so that no one should keep them, a Jew his brother, in bondage. Evidently, they didn't free their Gentile slaves. They only freed their Hebrew slaves. And all the officials and all the people obeyed who had entered into the covenant that each man should set, his free, set free his male servant and each man his female servant so that no one should keep them any longer in bondage. They obeyed and set them free. So you think, okay, that's nice. Chapter can end there. Well, no, it doesn't end there. Verse 11, <clears throat> But afterward they turned around and took back the male servants and the female servants whom they had set free and brought them into subjection for male servants and for female servants. So, okay, just kidding. Sorry, can't go free. And your slaves all over again. All right, now what's this? <laughs> How does this happen? And uh, different things. Well, we got clues later in the chapter as well, which we'll see here. But let's start off first of all, by taking a look at what the slavery is all about. Mosaic law did have clear instructions for both Gentile and Hebrew slaves. And there were expectations under the law for their taking and for their treatment and for their release. And in particular, Hebrew slaves were not to be treated like Gentile slaves. And if we take the time, we could look at uh, Exodus chapter 21, uh, verses 2 through 11, or Leviticus 25, verses uh, 39 through 55, and you'll see the, the stipulations that are there and the expectations that are there. That it may be that a, a fellow countryman becomes so destitute, so poor, no way to support himself, no way to discharge his debts, that the only way for him to, to uh, come through his personal bankruptcy, we would say, is to volunteer, to submit under slavery for a period of time. And it was common in the ancient world. And sometimes they would sell off a child into slavery, or they would sell off a, a spare wife or a concubine into slavery, or they would sell off themselves into slavery, depending on how bad the debt was and what period of time they had to, they had to come out of. With Jewish slaves, however, because they are a covenant people and they are a, a redeemed people that, that Yahweh himself owns, the, the uh, liberty would come after seven years a Jewish slave would be released uh, after seven years. And then you have cycles of seven and a jubilee year that would happen on the 50th year uh, when everyone is set free in a, in a jubilee. But uh, Jewish slaves are set free in the every seven years as a, as a maximum duration of their enslavement. 
And so um, I'll leave my bookmark here. And let's, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but Exodus 21, it is interesting, of course, and our nation has a history of slavery and sometimes things are emotional for discussion. But uh, biblically, we'll just look at the ancient world and the practice here. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. That is, they came into the slavery together, they're going to leave in the slavery together. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. He was a single man when he arrived. If he's departing, he'll be a single man when he departs. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. All right, and so there's the case of a voluntary bond servant who chooses to go beyond the seven year period of time. And there's lots of doctrine that comes into this. See, there's tons of doctrine on this because this is, uh, speaks to us related to our own slavery. We're slaves of, uh, we're in the slave market of sin and we get delivered out of that. We get freed from that. But then we, we decide we're going to go carnal and become sinners again. And so what do we do? We're like this slave right here going back to our old sin master saying, oh, I love my master. I don't want to be free. I want to serve you. And so, uh, you know, we can say metaphorically or spiritually speaking, it's as if we're pounding the all through our own ear saying, I want to be a, a sin to slave, a slave to sin in, uh, in that. Anyway, there's more and it goes on and it talks about girl slaves and what they're used for and other aspects there. All right. So there is a procedure in place for the release of a Hebrew slave. And uh, it, it comes on a schedule, it comes under law, it comes under the, the guidance of these things. Um, the idea now that, that Zedekiah comes up with, with, hey, let's just release them all right now for, for whatever reason we're coming up with, is an invention of their own. It is not commanded under law, it is not uh, directed by any prophet. This is evidently, from all indications of, of our text today, this is all Zedekiah's bright idea. And his nobles go along with it. His, his leading uh, men go along with it. The priests and the, and the false prophets go along with it. And it all appears to be is a, is a very uh, human viewpoint, uh, human effort idea to try to save their necks. And it's something that we see repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. They would lose a battle and they couldn't figure out why we lost the battle. They say, oh, we lost because we forgot to take the Ark of the Covenant with us. <laughs> and so they go grab the Ark of the Covenant out of the, out of the temple and they think that that'll help. We'll just put that out in front of us, and now we can't lose. And yeah, they lost, and then they lost the ark. All right? Um, coming up with your own ideas to solve problems is never the plan. The plan is be faithful, be obedient, follow what God is leading you in. Follow the, the run the race that's set before you. God's the one that's de- determining the, uh, these, these decisions. Zedekiah's Emancipation Proclamation was a covenant between the king and his people. Now, we've got to pay attention to this morning. I think it's vital for each one of us. Even though it's of their own imagination and they're making it up and it's what they're doing, they put it in the form of a covenant. 
and they swore that covenant in the presence of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. And so even though they were stupid and wrong and whatever for doing what they were doing and saying what they were saying, they made a vow in the presence of Yahweh Elohim. They stood in his house and before his face they entered into this covenant. And God holds them to it. This is serious. When you take a vow, the God of truth holds you to your vow. And this becomes really the, the, the essence of, of this whole episode right here this morning. This covenant was made before the Lord in the house of his reputation. That is the house that is called by his name. All right. And so we see it in verses 15, 18, and 19. If you skip down a little bit, you'll spot it. Uh, this is part of the judgment that Yahweh is pronouncing upon them. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant. See, when they revoked it, when they took the slaves back, they became covenant breakers. I will give the men who have transgressed my covenant, who have not fulfilled the words of the covenant which they made before me, when they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. See, look what they're doing. Look at verse 15. Uh, Though recently you had... um, Uh, turned and done what is right in my sight, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor. You made a covenant before me in the house, which is called by my name. It's interesting, that little clue there in verse 15, the freedom of the slaves, Yahweh wasn't opposed to that. He seemed to accept that, seemed to think it was right. Recently you had turned and done what is right. You know, what what a grace thing to do. Saying, hey, we're not at the end of our seven years, but let's just release them now. You know, and let them uh, let them uh, live out the rest of the Babylonian siege and freedom instead of bondage. Um, it's spoken up positively there in verse 15 until they broke the covenant. Each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. This is the name of his reputation, the name of Yahweh, his character, his integrity, his reputation. If you besmirch that, you're besmirching him, and he doesn't stand for that. He is the God of truth. And so we see in verse 18, they cut a covenant before me. They cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. Nowadays, we just you know sign and duplicate, and we sign here and sign here. But back then, they would cut this animal in two and rip the animal apart and set it on either side. And the covenant parties would walk between the two sides. All right, this is serious business. This is, this is literally causing a death and wishing it upon yourself if you are a covenant breaker. Saying, if I'm not faithful to this vow, then you may rip me in half like these animals I'm walking in between. When you place yourself in that covenant position. It's pretty vivid, right? This is the nature of an oath in the ancient world. This is the nature of, of swearing a vow and calling deity to witness. And this is true, and the God of truth holds them to this. This is not, this is not a, a children's ditty on a playground. We've turned it into a mocking thing. We've turned it into a, our culture did, 21st century has no clue what the ancient, how seriously this is. Now, now the little kids sing, you know, liar, liar, pants on fire. What does that mean? Okay. Or stick a needle in my eye, right? Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. Who does that? Nobody does that. But see, they sing it in a mocking kind of way, in a little child sing-song kind of way, saying, well, you know, if I'm lying, then stick a needle in my eye. Well, they're not going to do that. 
And they don't mean it anyway. But that's the idea behind this kind of a vow. Rip me in half. Such as uh, is happening here. And notice, the officials of Judah, verse 19, they cut the calf in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah and the officials of Jerusalem, the court officers and the priests and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And they are guilty. They have violated. When they take the slaves back, when they re-enslave the slaves, the, the released slaves, when they go back on this covenant, they are covenant breakers and they are prime target for, for wrath of God immediately. So I will give them into the hand of their enemies. This is a, this is a serious deal. Now, the only clue we have as to the why, <laughs> why? Why release a bunch of slaves and then take them right back? Okay, well, the one clue that we have comes in verses 21 and 22 of this chapter, and then we'll have more detail on Christmas uh, when we come back in three weeks in chapter 37. But there was a brief reprieve from the siege. Um, there's a little clue here in verses 21 and 22. Nebuchadnezzar actually lifted the siege for a very short time. reason why was because Pharaoh was marching out of Egypt and was going to attack his flank. <laughs> so he pulled some troops away from Jerusalem. He, he lifted the siege momentarily just for a short period, to go whoop up on some Egyptians. And then he was right back to business again in due course. And uh, when you look at the end of this chapter, we get our little hints here as to the motivation. Uh, Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all his officials, I will give into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life and into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon, which has gone away from you. See, there's a brief reprieve there that... Where'd that army go? They just left for a moment. Behold, I'm going to command, declares the Lord, and I will bring them back to this city. They're not going to forget about you. They're coming back. And they will fight against it and take it and burn it with fire. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. So that's our only clue in the chapter related to why they released all these slaves and then they took them back. Okay, it's like they released all the slaves hoping to make Yahweh happy and win their rescue. But then when the armies are gone, <laughs> oh, we're out of trouble now. Okay. And they make them all slaves all over again. You know, think about anybody you've ever heard of or know or yourself or whatever. When, when you get really religious in, in, in tough times, after 9-11, everybody start going to church. Okay. And then how long before that wears off? And then well, we're back to our own ugly ways again. You know, crisis over, the moment's passed, we can go back to doing what we were doing. And it's almost like as soon as Nebuchadnezzar was gone, they took the slaves all right back again. And, uh, and Yahweh just is having none of it. This is, this is such an attack. What happens here in this chapter is, is actually an affront to what it means to be Jewish. It's an affront to who they are as the objects of the Abrahamic covenant. <laughs> okay? And I'll show you this here in a moment as well. So the, Jerusalem had received a brief reprieve um, that apparently motivated the re-enslavement of their freed brethren. You know, if in fact the war is over, and if in fact Nebuchadnezzar is gone, and if in fact we can get along with our life now, well then, 
we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> we need those slaves. We got to rebuild the city. We got to plant new crops. We got to rebuild all the damage that was done. I mean, you know, when you survive a war, there's a lot of work that needs to be done after that war is over to, to move on and, and rebuild your economy. And so in their viewpoint, man, we got to get those slaves back. And so they re-enslaved them. How ugly is that? To, to say, hey, you're free. Just kidding. Okay. Well, the Yahweh, uh, Yahweh, the God of truth, he doesn't play those games. When he says, I will, it's I will. When he enters into a covenant, he holds himself to these covenants. The God who cannot lie puts himself under covenant obligations. That's why this, this whole episode is, is uh, so vital for us to understand. And so what we see here in verses 12 through 22 then, the Lord delivered a harsh rebuke to those who profaned his name. And this is the sin, profaning his name, invoking his name as witness to your covenant, and then profaning his name when you violate the covenant that you called him to be witness to. You're asking him to be party and witness to your deceit. He's no party and witness to your deceit. He'll be party and witness to your destruction (laughs) as being faithless in your covenant. That's what he'll be witness to. Why do you think we say swear to God? Or so help me God. We put our hand on a Bible and say, so help me God. We are, we are inviting him to bear witness, to observe the truthfulness of what we're saying. Something else I think that's lost in our culture today. Now we got this atheistic thing. You can swear or affirm and you can leave God out if you want. Or use a Quran if you would prefer that to a Bible. All right. So, um, Verses 12 and following, and this is the longest portion of the chapter. Um, Let's see here. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I made a covenant with your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. At the end, and so they're covenant breakers, and here's the covenant keeper pronouncing his wrath. At the end of seven years, each of you shall set free his Hebrew brother who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You shall send him out free from you, and, but your uh, forefathers did not obey me or incline their ears to me. Although recently you had turned to know what is right in my sight, and we read this already, each man proclaiming release to his neighbor, and you had made a covenant before me in the house which is called by my name. Yet, You turned and you profaned my name, and each man took back his male servant and each man his female servant, whom you had set free according to their desire, and you brought them into subjection to be your male servants and female servants. And so they are are painting the opposite picture of what they should be painting and making a covenant. They are profaning his name. So thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me. And uh, here's the judgment. So he says, therefore, thus says the Lord, verse 17, play on words here is fun. You have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother and each man to his neighbor. Behold, I am proclaiming a release to you. (laughs) All right. Since you had this false release and you took it back, I'm going to give you a release, a permanent release. (laughs) Okay. If you know what I'm saying, Uh, your release is going to be death the sword and famine and pestilence. 
So I'm proclaiming a release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, to famine. I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And this is uh, what they can expect. Release or liberty or freedom. What a concept. You ever study these words? I mean, they're powerful, right? We have freedom in Christ and we love freedom. We live in a land of freedom. This nation was founded on principles of liberty. The Hebrew word is doror, doror. And I found it highly amusing. In fact, I spent, I don't know how long, just chewing on doror and how doror sounds like terror, kind of. You know, you got to kind of slur your accent there. Doror, terror. But they were promising a release and they took it back. And he's going to give them a release. He's going to turn them into a terror. Anyway, I recommend Doror studies. Doror studies are useful because they come from him. He's the God of freedom. He's the one that, that provides the captives, uh, release to the captives. It's his son that paid the price in order to purchase the release of the captives. We're so thankful for that, of course. Uh, Duror is connected to Jubilee in, in Leviticus 25 and verse 10. It's a fun verse and so much here that uh, I want to do more Jubilee studies in uh, upcoming book studies. But uh, Leviticus 25.10. You wonder how a Jubilee would work in our culture. Leviticus 25.10. So count off your seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years. You shall have the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, namely 49 years. You shall then sound a ram's horn abroad on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound a horn all throughout your land. You shall thus consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim a release, a doror, through, uh, through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each, one, uh, each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his own family. You shall have the fiftieth year as a jubilee. And so they get the double, the double Sabbath at that point, because year 49 is a Sabbath, and year 50 is a jubilee Sabbath day. In any event, by profaning this principle, the Lord will give them a doror and make them a terror to the observing Gentiles around them. It's an object lesson for all the kings, all the kingdoms, all the Gentiles, all the nations surrounding Jerusalem. Looks at what God does with the Jews. And they, and they, learn, and they learn, and they're warned by that. You look, and you go, wow, see, like a younger sibling looks at the punishment the older sibling is getting into and goes, wow, I don't want that. See, I think I blessed my siblings mightily by showing them the things they didn't want. And so they learned how to behave. Okay, Gentiles can look to Israel and go, wow, if he treats his own people like that, see, what will he not do to us? If this is how he deals with the Jews, how he deals with the Jewish people, the covenant nation, and if he judges the covenant nation, his judgment begins with the house of the Lord. If he judges the Jewish people for their idolatry, how do we think we're going to skate by? You know, These Gentile pagans and their idolatry are going to come under Yahweh's wrath as well. And so we see it. There's uh, the warning statement that's made. In verse 17, it says... Um, 
therefore, thus says the Lord, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming release each man to his brother. Behold, I am proclaiming release to you, declares the Lord, to the sword, to pestilence, to the famine, and I will make you a terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And so that, it just it becomes unthinkable. It becomes something so frightening. It becomes the ultimate, uh, you know, you don't want to turn out like they did kind of a story. All right. Now, to cut a covenant. We don't use cutting, do we? We, we might cut a, well, we kind of do. You can cut a record, right? You can cut a, you know, cut a deal. Yeah, you can cut a deal. Covenants are cut. Okay, the main verb for covenant is is to cut a covenant, and the cutting of a covenant literally slices an animal in half. Zedekiah and the officials who defied this solemn ritual brazenly insulted the very basis for their position before the Lord. And now you think about this. Let's look at Genesis 15. When you think about what it means to be a Jew, what it means to be a part of the covenant nation. They are the covenant nation. There's no other nation on the planet that Yahweh entered into this unconditional covenant with, only with Abraham. Confirmed to Isaac, confirmed to Jacob. And so he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is the descendants of Jacob. Jacob is renamed Israel. It is the descendants of Jacob that become the tribes of Israel. And so the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he entered into this covenant with them. And in Genesis 15, you have one of the most beautiful stories ever. And it's beautiful because I think it's simple, because it's, it's so vivid and, and, and clear. And even if you just got saved this morning, you can read this and go, wow. And uh, I don't have to read the entire chapter to you here. It's <laughs> 21 verses. Um, but Abraham's already see, received promises in chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14. But he still has questions because no baby has arrived yet in chapter 15. I'm supposed to be a father of a multitude and there's no babies yet. And so he's engaged in a prayer life with, with Yahweh. Yahweh says, do not fear. I'm a shield to you. Your reward should be very great. Abram says, well, you know, I don't have a kid yet, Lord. My heir is Eliezer of Damascus. And uh, Yahweh says, no, one from your body will be your heir. And so he takes him outside, he says, count the stars, and so shall your descendants be. And then Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness, that famous verse there in verse 6. Okay, This is such a, a foundational chapter in so many ways. God makes a promise, we trust him. There you go, faith in Christ. And uh, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Here's another dynamic. Where did Abraham come from? Okay. The very land of Nebuchadnezzar's birth. Nebuchadnezzar is leading an army of Chaldeans, right? To, to, and they've got Jerusalem surrounded. Abraham was brought out of the land of Chaldeans. God enters into this covenant. And now here's this morning we're looking at King Zedekiah crafting this covenant and then betraying it. 
So there's so many facets here, I think, that interlock. It's kind of it, it's interesting, the, the links between Jeremiah and Genesis here. But um, brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. And, well, what will be the sign of this? How will I know? He said, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. This is going to be a monster sacrifice. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other, but he didn't cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses. Here's another uh, parallel. Because when we get back to Jeremiah, there's mention of the birds of prey and the carcasses and the, the, uh, the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. But in this case, though, Abraham's driving the carrion away, driving the, these birds away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And this is the, the, uh, the utterance then, probably the most solemn of all the utterances from 12 to 13 to 14 to 15 to 21 to all the times the Abrahamic covenant gets restated. And we have the promise of the, of the Egyptian slavery and the exodus right here and then the coming out. In the fourth generation they will return here, it says in verse 16, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. The whole time they were in bondage, God was allowing the course of the Amorite wickedness to run his course. And then he puts an end to it when he brings the Jews into that land. Now, it came about when the sun had set, it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. And this is a, these are symbols, all right, but it's God himself in this symbolism. Abraham does not walk between the dead animals. Abraham's asleep, listening to all this, dreaming about all this. A smoking oven pictures God the Father, flaming torch pictures Jesus Christ. Passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and then talks about the ites that are going to get conquered because this is now the land of Israel. So here's the covenant. And does Abraham walk through these pieces? No, Abraham's asleep. Who walks through these pieces? The father and the son. The oven and the torch. Okay? The fire that's unseen, the fire that's seen. No one has seen the father, but if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. I think the torch is the visible flame, is the visible representation. That's Jesus Christ. The oven is not visible. But anyway, we have a, a tandem here because it's the Father and the Son that are in agreement. It's the Father and the Son that are in agreement on Mount Moriah. It's the Father and Son that are in agreement on Mount Calvary, which is technically not a mountain. <laughs> we call it that. All right. So here, this is, what, this is what sets them apart. And because Israel has no obligations, it is unconditional. They can't break it if they wanted to. There are no stipulations. It's like a one-sided contract, a one-sided mortgage, a one-sided car payment, a one-sided whatever, where only the car company is the only side that has an obligation to give you a car. And then on your side, where normally there's, there's expectations of like a payment, well, that, that doesn't get included, okay? Or a house mortgage or any other kind of a covenant. Just make it one-sided. Put all the stipulations on one side. And, and you've got nothing to do on your side of things. Just... Receive the car, receive the house, receive eternal life, receive whatever. Whatever has been unconditionally promised to you on the basis of I will. 
That's what we deal with, all right? On the basis of I will. And so Zedekiah and his officials, you know, did they did they have to do this? Couldn't they have just, you know, sent out an email and said, hey, release all your slaves? Did they have to go into the temple, stand before the priests, stand before Yahweh and cut all these animals, make the sacrifice? Why did they do that? I mean, it's kind of a waste of animals, right? Because, I mean, they're under siege, they're starving. Uh, they probably should be eating those animals or doing what they can. But no, they're going to they're gonna put on this big religious show. They're going to slaughter these animals. They're going to cut them in half. They're going to pass between them. And they're going to promise release to the captives. And you talk about a blasphemous defiance of, of Yahweh. He's the one that promises release to captives. He's the one that has redeemed his people. He's the one that's going to die for their sins. And it's such a mocking, it's such a travesty in what they're doing here. They defied the solemn ritual and they brazenly insulted the very basis for their position before the Lord. And I'm reminded of a warning that's given to the church age in in Hebrews 10. You know, are are you going to insult the spirit of grace? Are you going to despise what God has done? Are you going to insult who God is? Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews, by the way, will be our next book study. I'm looking forward to that. I know you're in shock. You thought Isaiah and Jeremiah would never end. It will end. There is a New Testament. I know we've been in the Old Testament for a while now. It says in verse... uh, Hebrews 10.26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you ever study Mosaic law, it doesn't take long, you notice this is a harsh law. <laughs> Uh, virtually everything is punishable by death. Um, and, and when you break one point, you've broken all the points. I mean, it's, it's a ferocious law. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve? And this is when it approaches us, when we defy our mandate under grace in the church age. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has insulted the Spirit of grace. You have to put it that way? (laughs) Yeah. The author of Hebrews put it that way. When you're living in open defiance of the Savior who died for you, he didn't die for you so that you can do this, this, and this, and this. He died for you so you could walk in the newness of life. And so when you reject that, when you despise that, when you trample him underfoot, when you regard his blood as unclean, he, Father regarded his blood as holy and infinite, and he was well satisfied when Jesus said, it is finished. But we regard it as unclean and go ahead and do whatever we want to do in our own carnality, in our own darkness. 
For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so this is what they're doing, literally. They are regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant. They are crafting their own covenant and then betraying it. And they're doing so in the house of the Lord, in the name of the Lord. The Lord does not let that stand. That is absolutely vital. All right, then our last thing we'll look at here today. Understand, the God of truth holds every man accountable for his vows. This is a fundamental principle of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament alike. We're actually urged to not even make a vow. Just let your yes be yes, let your no be no. You're better off not entering into a vow. You ought to be known for your integrity anyway where a vow is not necessary. But if you do enter into a vow, if you do stand before the Lord God of truth and swear, then he will hold you to it. He will absolutely hold you to it. This includes wedding vows. This includes much that we sometimes take less seriously than we should be taking. And the God of truth holds us to our vows. Leviticus 19, 12, Numbers 30, verse 2, Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 through 23, with a footnote, if we have time, we'll get there. The grace towards daughters and wives. Starting in Leviticus 19 and verse 12. I hope you find this applicable, useful. not getting bored just because you haven't seen Jerusalem destroyed yet. We'll get there. It's coming up. We get to see it twice. Chapter 39 and chapter 52. Lots of uh, bloodshed and fire and wrath. All right, Leviticus uh, 19.12. You shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. See, everything from stealing to murder to false witness to all these things, they're, they're, they're not just crimes because other citizens don't like you when you do them. They are sins because they defy the very nature of who God is. Murder attacks God's image as life. Lying attacks God's nature as truth. Stealing uh, attacks God's nature as the possessor of heaven and earth, owner of all things, and the bestower upon those whom he wishes. False witness profaning his name when you swear falsely by my name. It's an attack on his very image. I'll grab Deuteronomy and then I'll back up to Numbers. Deuteronomy 23. Taking these slightly out of order, but I want to end with Numbers. Deuteronomy 23, 21 through 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. See, delay is just another way of not paying it. Delay, dragging your feet, is just a a carnal human slowpoke way of trying to get out of it. Hoping that maybe something will change in the meantime. Hopefully somebody will forget. Maybe uh, if it's a human, you know, and you wait long enough to pay back your debt, then he'll die in the meantime, and then, huh, don't have to pay him back. Okay? Your your sluggishness is is a a feeble attempt to defy what you said you were going to do. 
And the God of truth holds you to it. Do not delay to pay it, for it will be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be a sin in you. Nobody made you vow. Don't vow. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your mouth, from your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. What you have promised. You see, we are in the image of God. And part of the image of God is the blessings of being able to speak, being able to express your heart, to express your intention, to express what you will do. So when you say, I will, those aren't just empty words. In the image of God, you are reflecting the I am who is saying, I will, and he does every I will he ever says. He is faithful to his truth. We need to be faithful to what we say. This is, this is mandatory for humanity. That's why lying is right up there with murder in, in, in Mosaic law for the things that are put to death. Murderers and liars are put to death. <laughs> Try convincing a politician of that. Okay? You know, there's a whole crowd that wants to do away with the death penalty for murderers. You know, I don't see a massive movement underfoot to keep the death penalty for murderers and add a death penalty for liars. There too, should only be a politician that would vote for that. And uh, adultery, by the way, punishable by death. All right, I'll stop there. I'm reminiscing over the good old days. Here's... Uh, but the God of truth, okay? If you say you're going to do it, you're going to do it. And if you vow before the Lord, then he is bearing witness to what you said you were going to do, and you're going to do it. Now, Numbers 30 gives us the same reality, but it does indicate a measure of grace, and it does, I think, it presents some beautiful principles for humanity, principles for husbands and fathers, principles that apply in the law and beyond the law, principles that, uh, you know, the law didn't invent family. So family principles came before the law, and then we still have family today in the age of grace. So we can glean principles from a passage such as this. Verse 2 says, If a man takes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You control what comes out of your mouth. And men are accountable. Also, if a woman makes a vow to the Lord. Now, spot this. I'm I'm almost out of time, but um, I'll talk fast. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation in her father's house in her youth, notice, okay, because she's going to have a rescue. She has a, a shepherd, a father. And her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself. And her father says nothing to her. Yeah, that's a problem. Men don't like to say stuff, and so they stay quiet, and you need to say something. You heard it. Stop it. It's a foolish vow. But if he doesn't say anything, then all her vow shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day, see, he's, he's not going to stay silent. He speaks up. 
and he forbids her on the day he hears of it. None of her vows, her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. And notice, the Lord will forgive her because her father has forbidden her. She is blessed by a believing father that stepped in and said no. All right, she's protected and she's blessed. Now, if he doesn't step in and say no, then she's held to it, okay? Ah, but then she gets a second chance. (laughs) Grace upon grace. However, if she should marry while under her vows. So now some time has gone by and dad let it slide and now she's bound. But now she's engaged. She should marry while under her vows or the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself. And her husband hears of it. Now he's got a chance. But if he says nothing to her on the day he hears of it, then her vows shall stand and her obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day her husband hears of it, now he can't leave this hanging over her head for weeks on end. It's got to be that first day when he first hears about it. This is your opportunity. You're now engaged to my daughter, and oh, by the way, this is the vow she's under. Choose you this day, okay? If on the day he hears of it, he forbids her, then he shall annul her vow, which she is under, and the rash statement of her lips by which she has bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. So her father has a shepherding blessing in her life, and her husband has a shepherding blessing in her life. But the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, well, where's their shepherding blessing? It's not there. They're widowed or they're divorced. Everything by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. All right. But if she vowed in her husband's house, he has the chance to, assuming he doesn't stay silent, if he speaks up on the day he hears of it, he can, uh, he can annul it. He can veto it. Like Tevier. The papa. Okay? The papa has the veto. All right. Anyway, that's... What we have there. The God of truth holds every man accountable for his vows. They made their vows. They cut this covenant. They betrayed this covenant. They re-enslaved the slaves that they had let go. And the God of truth is holding them to account. Rebuking them, condemning them, judging them, and guaranteeing their release as soon as this city falls. All right, next week we get to learn about the Rechabites. We've got a fun chapter here with the Rechabites in chapter 35. Lord willing and rapture pending, we will uh, come back to this next week. But thank you, Father, for this day, for this study, for your truth. I pray, Father, that you will open our eyes to the seriousness of our vows, our yes and no statements, our place in your uh, plan as, uh, as uh, speakers of truth. I do thank you for this Christmas season. It's a marvelous season, Father. We get together with family and opportunity to proclaim Christ. And, and uh, just I pray for family gatherings and other holiday uh, events and, and uh, occasions whereby we can talk not only about the babe in the manger, but the man that went to the cross to purchase our redemption. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.